Welcome. My name is Patrick Curran, and along with my friend Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the highly irrelevant. In today's episode, we respond to a call-in question that asks, what is the field of quantitative methodology, and how can we use this as a framework for making unique contributions to the sciences? We also discuss portmanteaus, social skills, drunkles, Zantac, half Transylvanians, NASCAR pit crews, carving a turkey, ice cream sandwiches, and trailing vortices. We hope you enjoy today's episode. All right, so I came up with something cool for us. Are you ready? I am. All right, it's it's a portmanteau. I don't know if portmanteau is a word that crosses your your life ever. So I'm from Colorado, and I don't know what that means. Okay. <laughs> You use lots of big words all the time. I, again, I think it's from a calendar that you have on your desk. Um, okay, so portmanteau is a really, it's a fancy, it's a, what'd you call it one time? A 40-point word? Something like that, maybe. Um, like spork. Spork is a portmanteau. <laughs> uh, combination of spoon and fork. Infomercial. Uh, ginormous. When, when you just need to put two concepts together to form a single word. There are some that don't exist but ought to exist, and here are some that roll around in my head. Like, this is a very romantic one. If you are just longing to see the person that you love so, so deeply, then you would have anticipation. Okay, so you see how those two ideas come together. Kind of corny. The one that gets used in my house a lot is, you know, the tomato has that that brown spot, the, the core where it was attached to the... Yes, you know, to the to the vine, um, that's the tomanus. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, just a sec. I need to write this down. <laughs> yeah, I know for a fact you're only writing down tomanus. <laughs> um, so I came for what we do. <laughs> I came up with quantitainment. What do you think? Quantitainment. Not as good <laughs> as <No>. tomanus. <laughs> Okay. Quantitude, you're home for Tomanus. <laughs> but it's running a close second. Okay. So tell yeah. me how Merriam-Webster would define quantitainment. Yeah, well, we're not we're not all quantitative all the time, right? We we we're trying to infuse a certain amount of uh, interest into a topic that otherwise is kind of dry, but we're not totally entertainment. I don't think either of us is really qualified to be a straight up entertainer. So we're putting entertainment in a place where entertainment doesn't usually exist. And that's in quantitative uh, methods or the communication about things that have to do with quantitative methods. So I just thought quantitainment really described what we're trying to do here. I, I don't, you don't have to agree. I'm just telling you, that's what I was thinking. I like it. I'm envisioning an XY axis where you have quantitative mm. rigor and entertainment value, mm-hmm. and then trying to picture the random walk of that Euclidean space mm-hmm. that we actually fill. And I'm I'm not <laughs> sure what shape that is. I really do think it's probably a random walk. Okay. Well, I think we should get our, uh, uh, our marketing team or our intern on trying to map that out for us uh, at some point, anyway. The quantiturn? The- <laughs> Okay, that was a really good try, Patrick. <laughs> it's a good try. If I had a nickel for every time uh-huh. yeah. uh, I had heard, that's a really good try, Patrick, I'd have mm-hmm. a really heavy bag of nickels <laughs> that I could throw at you. Um, so in that, in that Euclidean XY axis, if it's yeah. really low, if you put a spot, if you, you put a round dot at mm-hmm. very low in quantitative and very low in, in entertainment, is that the quantitanus? <laughs> That's every class everybody has ever taken in our field. Oh my god. Nice. That was that was a that was a meta portmanteau. You really brought that together. So maybe this is an interesting, completely serendipitous segue. Listeners, as you may or may not know, we do have a webpage, quantitudethepodcast.org, and at the bottom of the webpage, below some uh, uh, very troubling pictures of Greg and me when we were much, much younger, there's a a Google voicemail number that you can call and leave a question or a comment or, or a suggestion, something like that. And we actually have our first one 
that we want to weave a show around. You deleted Heavy Breathing Guy? I deleted I deleted my own call, really, <laughs> yes. So what we want to do is uh, play this and then just talk about it. We have no outline. We have no agenda. Mm-hmm. We have no preparation. So it's going to be exactly like all of our prior episodes. Um, but uh, let me jump to the call and then we'll respond to it. Cool. Hi, this is Alexis from a unknown university. I'm studying quantitative methods and I meet people a lot and they ask me what I do and I have this dilemma of do I tell them I study psychology or do I tell them I study statistics? Either way, it doesn't really go well. So I've started to just say quantitative psychology, which either terrifies them or intrigues them a lot. Um, and then I don't really know what else to say because then they ask about what I do specifically, and I'm like, do you have a few hours? So what should I say to the, the general lay person who asks, what is quantitative psychology? All right, Alexis, thank you very much for calling in from the Mystery University. <laughs> um, so <laughs> she raises a really wonderful question, which I can speak for myself, and I'm guessing for you as well, is something I've struggled with for 25 years, and that is, what is it that we do? What is our field? Have you been faced with this? Yeah, well, it's not just what is our field, but how do we talk about it to other people, whether they're outside our field, tangentially related to our field, um, even in our field. And that is, it's a challenging thing. Um, it also depends if you, if you want them to care uh, or not. I sort of have a have a standard joke that if you're on an airplane and someone strikes up conversation and asks you what you do, if you want to talk to them, you say you're a professor. If you don't want to talk to them, you say you teach statistics and you get the entire flight, uh, entire flight to yourself. So yeah, I absolutely encounter this. My biggest challenge is trying to explain it to my mom mm-hmm. because I'm still not entirely convinced that she understands what I do. I have, a, I have an idea. Yeah. You, re- you ready? Let's yes. roll. Let's role play this. Are you ready? I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna be. I, this cannot end well. I'm gonna be your mom. All right, and I'm going back to the the the, the version of your mom that we landed on. Okay, go ahead. When I was talking to Dottie at the house next door, and uh, I was borrowing some smokes, and she gave me a casserole, and I was trying to explain to her what it is you do because. You know, she cared and stuff. So, uh, but I don't know what to say to Dottie. What should I say to Dottie? You know, I can say just in a single sentence. It's it's quite simple. Is uh, I'm a heart surgeon, and uh, I I run the surgery department here at UNC. Uh, they fly me home on the jet helicopter every evening. And uh, no, you can't visit uh, because, you know, you're, it, it's too hard on your heart to, to travel. And so you'll just have to believe me. Okay. So that's often what I tell my mom. Here, <laughs> Here's what's going to happen when she tells Dottie that. Dottie is, <laughs> Dottie's going to say, I've been having some heart troubles recently. <laughs> I'd like to talk to that boy of yours. Uh, it's like there's a Seinfeld episode where he tells his dad he bought him a VCR and it's like that costs too much money and he goes it only costs $25 so then like everybody in the trailer park says they want a VCR <laughs> all right but I all digress right, so okay hmm. what what do you tell her what do I tell her I say that I'm a quantitative psychologist all right which is one of those phrases I don't know if that's a portmanteau did I say that right portmanteau <laughs> Maybe that is quantitative psychologist, but I've got this totally oddball background because I actually am a child clinical psychologist by training and um, am very proud of that. I'm not a particularly good one. We've established that in, in earlier episodes, but, but I, my PhD is in child clinical. I did an internship. I, I you know, spent a full year working in inner city Philadelphia and at the Medical College of Pennsylvania. And so I consider myself uh, a clinical psychologist. But, you know, going through Arizona State, I had this remarkable opportunity to take all these quantum research classes. And then I had this wonderful postdoc with with Mutane out at UCLA that kind of was another wonderful shove in this direction. But I'm not entirely sure how I would define 
mm-hmm. what I do. I when asked, when asked, I either at like a dinner party or you know when, especially like the fun questions come when you go home for the holidays, right? And you're mildly drunk, uncle. Drunkle. I would do my That's the portmanteau, drunkle. Drunkle. <laughs> there you go. Is. I won't try doing the voice skills that you have because, again, it just comes out to be a pirate. It turns out my entire Wait, extended family are pirates. Arg, what you do, Patrick? Um, is I say, well, I, I do uh, research in quantitative methods and, and design in the field of psychology. And when pushed, I say, well, I work on the measurement and modeling of human behavior. That's kind of what I try to, that's my general umbrella. I do the measurement and modeling of human behavior. Um, How did you get that so quickly on your phone? Or did you have that queued up? Anytime Um, I talk to you, I have the the crickets ready to go. (laughs) Um, Okay, Okay, pretty boy. So wait, no, 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 wait, wait. So who is it that you're talking to that you were saying these things to? Well, what's what's the audience? Did you say who this who this person was at the party? Thanksgiving dinner, family. Thanksgiving. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Is and I talk about it with great enthusiasm. I say, you know, so we study children. So my own work is risk and protective factors in child development. So mm-hmm. particularly with child and adolescent drug use and alcohol use. And, and, you know, I talk about, so we try to understand what kind of kid is at risk for using and how can we design an intervention to help reduce that risk? And, and so I say, well, we believe anxiety to exist and depression to exist, but we can't observe it. And so we have to try to, you know, figure out what did we observe to infer what we didn't observe. And so I kind of talk in a very applied way like that. Mm -hmm. But I also am very clear, and this is important to me, you know, also also not only when talking to my drunkle, Mm -hmm. but, you know, a senior associate dean who understands even less than my drunk uncle what I do Mm -hmm. is... I strive to make unique and novel contributions to the field of psychology through quantitative methodology. So just like a clinical, developmental, social, cognitive person would make unique contributions to the psychological sciences in their field, I strive to do the same thing, um, but from a quantitative and methodological standpoint. And Mm -hmm. that differentiates doing data analysis which is a different kind of thing. All right, so you have your own drunkle, who <laughs> I will ask the question, but it comes out as a pirate. Um, uh-huh. What is your response? <laughs> well, um, let me give you different contexts because, you know, and, and just cue the crickets already because none of these are fascinating. The thing that I really liked that you said, which I found fascinating, was that you couched it in an applied context, right? So whatever you, whatever you do, if you can use the word children in the description, it makes it harder for the person to say, you know, that it's, that it's not a valuable thing. So I, 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 I like that you couched it that way. And that's something I actually don't tend to do. Um, what, what I will say before I give you my description, this, this is a scenario that has played out multiple times. I go, I'm at a party. Now, I don't actually go to a ton of parties um, because, as you know, I'm, I have no social skills. But, um, but on the rare occasions when I've gone to a party, this is usually what happens. So I'm with my wife. Uh, her name is Goldie. That's her actual name, not her stripper name. Her name is Goldie. So we'll be there and someone will say to her, so, you know, what do you do? And Goldie will say something like, um, I'm a clinical researcher who develops web curricula to help train people to work with at-risk youth. And the person will say something like, that is so interesting. That is so fascinating. And then they'll turn over to me and they'll say, and what do you do? And I'll say something like, I teach statistics. And there is, it's a visible change in the person to the point where they will often say things uh, here's one example. This is an actual example of something somebody said. Oh my God, I had to take Zantac. Or it's not Zantac. Let me do that again. (laughs) Bad allergies. (laughs) All right. Here here we go. Um, (laughs) Zyrtec? (laughs) 
This is an actual reaction from somebody. Oh, my God. I had to take Xanax to get through that. Um, so I've, you never met this person before in your life. And the first exchange that, that you have with this person is that they, they confess that they had to take Xanax to get through what you do every day for a living. Um, <laughs> and it's, you know, one of the things that's always fascinating to me is that our field, what we do, it makes people have a reaction, almost like a post-traumatic reaction to having taken statistics. Uh, and it, and it, it unlocks the worst of, of their social skills pretty much always. I get stuff like that all the time. And, and I was thinking one time, what if I were a writer? And, and I am a writer. You're a writer. We're right, right? And if you're at a party and someone said, what do you do? And you go, I'm a writer. Right? Can you imagine anybody going, oh my God, <laughs> writing is just, oh, it's the worst. I have to take Xanax for, right? No one's going to do that. But for us, it just makes people, you know, go crazy. So this is, it bothers me, but I just needed the opportunity to get that off my chest. So thank you for that. Um, so I have been asked by a variety of people what I do, and they could be strangers, they could be people on the airplane, they could be my, my mom. Um, I tried to explain what I do to my mom one time when she was alive, and this is the conversation. You ready? So we're at my grandmother's house, and we are making a big batch of um, paprikash, right? Hungarian food, because I am actually half Transylvanian. Uh, and mom and I are cooking, and, and she's cutting some carrots for something, and she just turned and looked at me, and she goes, what is it you do? You know, and it was a very sweet gesture for her to ask. And she doesn't sound like a pirate. She sounded completely normal, um, unlike your mom. Uh, and, I, and so I explained to her, and this was, this was many years ago. I said, well, I'm starting to get into this thing called structural equation modeling. And, you know, and I explained to her a little bit about what it was about. And she's cutting carrots. And you could, you could tell that she just, she had shut down mentally, you know, part, like eight words in. And she turns over to me and, she, you know, I was saying about how I think it'll be a very popular area and it's growing and all that. And all she said was, you know, just because everyone else is doing structural equation modeling doesn't mean you have to. If everyone else jumped off a cliff, hmm, hmm. And then she oh, went she back to yeah, she, that's, that's right. That, that was really, you know, sort of the full extent of the conversation I had with my, with my mom, my grandmother actually wanted to read a paper that I had written. And so I gave her a paper I had written and I told her that, you know, it's okay if you don't make it past the second page, you know, it's very sweet of you to ask. And uh, then she she wrote me a little post-it note and put it on the paper uh, and it said, you were right, I didn't make it past the second page. Um, and, you know, with a little I love you on mm -hmm. it, which was very, very sweet. Here's the way I think about it. If I am talking to someone who actually cares, and that's a big assumption, uh, I never even thought really to invoke the children. Um, maybe I'll have to do that. Here's the thing. I, the program that I am in is called Measurement Statistics and Evaluation, which already is a different lead-in than quantitative psychology. Um, and the way I think about it is imagine you wanted to conduct a study. Let's say it's in education. Um, doesn't have to be, but let's say it's an education. Um, and how are you going to design that study? How are you going to know, here I'll use children, how many children to get? How are you going to know where to get them? How are you going to design the study? That's part of what I do, and that feeds into what we could call broadly evaluation. What are you going to gather from them? What information? Do you want to know about their motivation? Do you want to know about their achievement? Well, how do you measure motivation and achievement? How do you, do you have to construct things to measure them? Do you just go up to each kid and say, how motivated are you? That's really measurement, how we try to quantify the things that we care about. And then how do we analyze all of the data that we have? Do we have existing methods? Do we have to create new methods? Um, that's the statistics part. So the measurement statistics and evaluation come together and they're all components of research in education, research in psychology, research in health. Um, and I help train people to do all of those things. And then in my own research, I help to develop new methods to do uh, different aspects of that process, hopefully better. I buy that. <laughs> I think what we do... This is like pop quiz now. I've yeah. Got, you're, you're providing me my feedback. It's all like, right, what? What? 
As my teenage daughters say, that's a choice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, you're exactly right. I mean, I, 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 I like how you describe that. How I try to tie it is quantitative methodology is a way of knowing. So mm-hmm. one of my favorite classes that I teach is a research methods, and I have an undergrad version, I have a grad version. I had the best class I've ever had in any of my education, running from kindergarten up through postdoc. Uh, there's a faculty member named Clark Presson, and he's mm-hmm. at Arizona State. He is still there. <laughs> he taught the first year grad research methods course uh, for clinical students. And I, I can say unambiguously, it's the best class I've ever had. And he really got us thinking about the philosophy of design and methods. And he planted the seeds of this this way of knowing. And it wasn't in quant specifically, but it was just kind of broadly is how do you know about the world? How do you know that? Like, you know, that was just a theme that, that, that kept coming up. Uh, an example I had once is uh, uh, I in an undergrad class, I would talk about how, you know, psychology is a science. Well, everybody knows. It's like the science of the obvious, right, as a lot of people will say that. We had a new senior associate dean come into the faculty meeting. This was about 15 years ago. And honest to gosh, he was doing like a listening tour, you know, of all the departments. And he sat down and he opened with, tell me what psychology offers that my grandmother doesn't already know. He Mm. opened with that. And it was very funny. I leaned forward in my chair and I caught my chair's eye and he gave me this super subtle just shaking the head. He just shook it back and forth. And I don't, so I don't just do it, leaned Patrick. back and I was don't like, okay, I didn't say a word. But in my undergrad research class, it's a setup. And so I, I print out two things and I interweave them together. And um, they are several things of like the these obvious findings in psychology. And I totally set the kids up. And so one is like, um, there was an actual study that indicated that um, birds of a feather flock together. And so people are attracted to similar, you know, someone who is similar to themselves, except the person on the left and right of them it says uh, a study found that opposites attract and that people are drawn to one another who are different than they are. And so I have them read all these things and then I say, okay, can you believe somebody did a study for this? Can you believe that, you know, this is like what we call a science? And they're like, oh yeah, it's so stupid, I can't believe. And then I have them trade papers and then they're angry at me for the entire rest of the semester. I do this about 20 minutes into the first day. But the point is, is, you know, science as a whole is a way of knowing about the world. And there are many ways, right? There's faith, there's belief, there's experience, and science is one. And I believe that quantitative is one lens through which we know about the world. And that's our day job, is answering the question, well, how do you know that? You and I both have teen kids. I'm sure you do, because I do as well, struggle with social media right, Mm -hmm. is how much screen time should they have? How much should you, you know, monitor? And so we've got a couple of family friends who have the spyware put on their phone Mm -hmm. that the kids don't know about. Mm -hmm. And they track every text message, every post. And I just am crazy uncomfortable with that. Mm -hmm. And we don't have that with the kids. Well, which is better, right? How, How do you know what is the better thing? And that's what we do. How do you measure? How do you model? How do you predict? I like that, and here's what here's what that leads me into. Uh, and this, I don't know if this is going to be a tension in your world or only in mine. The descriptions that that we often give have to do with answering other people's questions. And I remember when I first arrived here at the University of Maryland many many years ago, uh, I was so, so excited to be here. And I, just for the record, I am I am even more excited to be here now, however many years later. Um, but we had a dean here who apparently wasn't so excited that I or any of my colleagues were here. And he put forth a proposal to disband our department. It was the Department of Measurement, Statistics, and Evaluation, with the model being that one of us would go into each of the other departments in the College of Education. And the rationale was, and this is almost a direct quote, well, that way, one of you can help all of them in each of the departments to run SPSS. 
And that was his view of what we did. And that was what I walked into as an assistant professor. And it was very, very scary, you know, and I had to look to the more senior people to try and figure out. And this went all the way to the provost office trying to combat this. It was a very, very uncertain time. We, we survived. We made it through that ugly, ugly period. One of the next deans we had, not the, not the exact next dean, but one of the next deans that we had went through the listening tour thing and uh, and came to my office. And by that time, I was a little bit older. And this particular uh, dean liked race car driving, of all things. She was kind of into race car stuff. And she came into my office and she said, you know, and I think very genuinely, she said, okay, tell me what you do. And <clears throat> I said, all right. Well, I said, you know who Jeff Gordon is? And, you know, and for listeners who don't know what Jeff Gordon is, and by the way, there is not a NASCAR bone in my body, not one, <laughs> not a one. Um, but, you know, I asked her, you know who Jeff Gordon is? She goes, well, of course I know who Jeff Gordon is. And I said, so he has a pit crew, right? He has a pit crew that helps him in races, comes in. And before Jeff Gordon, pit crews were sort of like a bunch of fat guys that were going, looks like he's coming around again. Uh, better get ready. And people would come in, and the fat guys would go up, and they'd change the tires, and they'd try to do it real fast and stuff. Uh, and then they'd send the car off on his way. And I said, Jeff Gordon's pit crew trained like athletes. They continue to train like athletes. They work on, they work on being hyper-fit. They go through drills, routines. They have completely revolutionized what it means to be a pit crew. In part, that helps him do better. But in part, it also helps everyone else do better because they have made essentially pit crew science. Said so, so, I help other people to drive their cars. I help them to go places where they want to go. I help them to go fast. I help them to go slow. I help them to do whatever they want. But I also work to make the pit crew better to improve that science. And if you don't have people who are pushing the envelope to make the methods better, then you're not going to make the world better for people who use those particular methods. I was saying that sort of preemptively because I don't want to hear, but what is your content area? I have heard that historically so often. And, you know, as I've gotten older, whether it's more crotchety or more confident, my answer is, this is a content area. And here is why it is a content area. And, you know, I, I won't, I, I don't do the Jeff Gordon pit crew story for necessarily for other people, but I help people to understand that getting better at the measurement, the statistics, and the evaluation helps people get better at all aspects of research. And so you need people who work on those kinds of things. That is what I do. That is my content area. And I say that without any apology. And the thing that I most resonate with that is that it's embedded within the content. It's inextricable. And so often what a question will arise is, well, how are you different than statistics or from biostatistics or applied mathematics? First is I'm different from that because I am not good enough at math to do that stuff, right? (laughs) Is that's a minor, that's a minor point. But the Uh second is, I sincerely identify myself as a psychologist. I am Mm -hmm. embedded within the science of psychology and the study of human behavior. And that my mode of scientific inquiry and contribution is through a methodological component of that. Being here at Carolina and in the psychometric lab, measurement is is important to all of us and in the work that we do. So I see that very much as a part of what I do. But then kind of what I really get passionate about, and this in part relates to the child development aspect, is the modeling of, of behavior over time. And so looking at repeated measures, data, and all the complexities that come with that. I don't feel like I can make unique, meaningful contributions to quantitative methodology without sincerely tying it to a question in psychology. We are not a saddle in search of a horse, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that some areas in our field are that. There's a theta hat, and it doesn't matter what that represents. I can estimate theta hat, I can get a standard error for theta hat, I can plot theta hat, and whatever it represents is fine. 
And at least in my own work, um, that troubles me deeply. Is mm -hmm. I feel like unless you know what that is, you understand what that is, and you're trying to tie that to a substantive field, I worry deeply about um, you know trying to pursue quantitative elements without a tie to some substantive science. I absolutely believe in in purpose driven methodological research, and you and I are on the same page in in this regard. Um, I am inspired by the kinds of data that people encounter. I am inspired by the inspired by the needs that they have methodologically, things that don't exist. Um, I love it. I, you know, in many ways, I think of myself as a methodological engineer. And the analogy that I've used in many other places is that um, once you are a very capable methodologist, which I am aspiring to be, uh, the world is just a series of little Legos, and you put them together to build whatever you need. There aren't, there's not a box that shows you the picture. There's not a set of instructions. It is you construct what you need, whether or not it exists, because you are driven by that particular need. Um, my question for you, two parts to it, and it's going to feel a bit loaded, but I don't intend it to be. Would you hire me in your program? In a heartbeat. Well, that was a very sweet answer. There, there's a reason I'm asking, and, and maybe you can perceive it already. So the short answer is, I think that you would ideally fit in both with the philosophy of our area, but also you would play well with others. Now let me tell you, I have taken one psychology course in my entire life. How does that, does that change the way you view what I do? Does it make the idea of psychology seem less necessary to you? How, how does that make you think or feel? Now it's more broadly on how restrictive do I view the field of psychology, mm -hmm. right? And I would say, knowing the work that you do, the modeling, the measurement, I would say that I would also describe your work as the measurement and modeling of human behavior over time. Mm -hmm. You're embedded within an educational system and, and I mean, in, in educational sciences and all of that. I feel like we do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so whether you know how to spell psychology or not, because mm -hmm. there are a couple of letters in there that exist that you don't actually pronounce, and it always drives me crazy trying to mm -hmm. remember which ones are which. What my worry is, and I know I'm getting, I'm circling the drain a little bit, and I know some people who are listening are, are probably yelling at the, the, the car radio right now, and I apologize. I didn't mean to get into this blind alley. I meant it very much as a statement about my own work and my own contributions to the field. We couldn't exist without mathematical statisticians. We couldn't exist without computational statisticians. I'm saying how I strive to contribute to the world is embedding the quantitative methodology within a substantive focus. Mm -hmm. And I think that's precisely what you do. So given that you've had one psychology <laughs> course, I still think you would be ideally suited for this. And indeed, I would advocate for you to take over my directorship <laughs> so that you could deal with a couple of emails that are in my uh, inbox right now. Awesome. Um, yeah, so I, I am in a college of education, but that's just because of a series of, you know, not entirely random events, but they could have just as well been random. I know I have a background in education, but I feel like I could be doing what I do you know, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, and you were kind enough to support it. I feel like I could do it within a psychology program or department. I feel like I could do it to some extent within a public health environment. I feel like there are aspects of uh, a business school where I could do the kinds of things I do. And maybe it is the fact that it all comes down to understanding the complexities of human behavior with regard to measurement, with regard to measurement error, with regard to understanding systems more broadly. Um, that is what we do. And a lot of the same kinds of problems and needs arise in all of these settings. And some of the stuff I have done absolutely has more obvious connections to psychology, and some might have more obvious connections to data structures that exist in education or other health settings. But I think what we do generally transcends uh, a lot of disciplines, or as you said, could be framed by psychology more broadly construed. And I, and I would hire you in a heartbeat as well, even though we're in a college of education and you're a C student at best in college. I occasionally um, got C pluses. Yeah, 
so proud of you. Um, and I too consider myself, you know, you know, when you made a joke about mathematical statistics, I think the statistics we do is, you know, I always say it's a lowercase s. Um, you know, the, the capital S people are they're elsewhere on campus. Yeah. Um, but but I don't I don't even mean that apologetically. I mean that you know the kinds of things we do are very foreign to the capital S statistics people. Uh, so I, I'm anyway I'm meandering a little bit, but but I think we are in uh, we are in alignment uh, very much so. My avoidance of the capital S is the term applied statistics, as I mm-hmm. kind of consider myself an applied statistician. I do not consider myself a statistician. I don't have that skill set. And more importantly, I don't have that interest. So that's what statistics with a capital S does. What do we do? <laughs> what makes us a unique field? I mean, going back to Alexis's question, You know, there are two components of it is what do you tell somebody at a dinner party? Right. But, you know, obviously closely related. But a a distinct question is, well, you know, what is it that we do? What are what makes us unique as a science? Yeah. So I'm going to assume that we have more more or less in in our extremely structured way addressed Alexis's question. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Alexis, I hope there's an answer in there somewhere. Yeah, we're 38 or 40 minutes in, and I don't think we've actually addressed the question. Right. So the theme for me for the whole thing is about ways of knowing. And uh, I think in answer to Alexis's question, what we really did was we framed it in terms of what we do has to do with ways of knowing. And we often look look at that and think about that in terms of ways of knowing in other fields. And we help people with the tools to help them know things in their own fields. But, but as per your question, what is our field in terms of ways of knowing about, about what we do, about methodology? Um, so let's turn that back in and talk about ways of knowing uh, within our own field. Is that something that you explore with your own students? I do. And I, I actually wrestle with it myself in my own work is mm-hmm. how, how do you aspire to make a unique contribution to scientific inquiry? And my standard rubber stamp comment that I, I use myself and I we do all the standard post-tenure reviews now and you have to submit your research statement and everything. And I've, I've used mm-hmm. this over a 20-year period. I almost have it memorized. I strive to develop, evaluate, and apply advanced methodologies to the empirical study of human behavior. So first, it's total BS, right? Right. Wow. It's a nice opening. And, and if I pulled up like my research statement from 1994, I think it opens mm-hmm. in exactly the same way. So I'm not sure how mm-hmm. far I've advanced. <laughs> but, you know, as a buddy of mine used to say, it has the added advantage of being true, which is, I think, a component of quantitative methodology is the development of novel methodologies, the evaluation under varying conditions to understand performance, and the application in real-world settings. And part of application is both empirical evaluation of meaningful research hypotheses, but also dissemination. I see those as, as working toward ways of knowing. So you just laid out a really, really nice hierarchy here, and we, we could even use it to structure what we say. Um, I wrote it down, which is unusual <laughs> that you said something that I wrote down, but you mentioned the development the evaluation, the application, and the dissemination. Is that? Yes, exactly. Did, did I get that? Okay, that's, that's very good. So in terms of the development, I, I don't know where you would want to dial in, but I still feel this is a really useful structure to talk about what we do. Um, in terms of methodological development, how do you, uh, do you want to expand a little bit on how you think about our field with regard to methodological development that we haven't already sort of covered? Oh my, that's a challenge. How do you do it? How do you come up with these methods? So there's the personal me, and then there's the royal we, right? So how do mm-hmm. I go about trying to to do things? And mostly I take Dan Bauer out to lunch and I ask him mm-hmm. what he's working on. And then I try to scurry back to the office and write it down and pretend, uh, <laughs> pretend like I came up with the idea. And the uh-huh. beauty, so here for younger <laughs> academicians is a professional development suggestion is always work with people who are higher in the alphabet than you because it appears like it's alphabetical. <laughs> so if you look at my CV, I have Bauer and Curran, Bolin and Curran, Biazons and Curran, Colder and Curran, Chasson and Curran. Do you know how hard it is to find colleagues when your last name starts with a C? <laughs> 
you people who are the M's and P's and uh-huh. and and W's of the world, you're like you've got it made. Yeah, um, you know, and so which is why we haven't collaborated. Which is why and you, we haven't. Right, you're like, you know, because if you have Hancock okay. and Curran, it's like obviously yeah. he's doing the yeah. heavy lifting. A yeah. very brief anecdote: it, I have, as as my brother says, well, to make a short story long. When I'm telling, <laughs> Bauer and I were at a uh, wedding of a prior student, and we're sitting around, and a young woman came up and said, "You have to sign the guest register." And I have a really weird thing. There are three things I don't do is I don't make toasts, I don't carve a turkey, and I don't sign a guest register. And we can spend some time talking about each of these. There's just too much pressure on all of those. But wow. um, toast? I just... Pa- I just <laughs> keep your okay. eye on the ball, Hancock. <laughs> Noted. And so I, I passed it on and didn't, didn't sign it because of these. I lead a principled life, and this is a, a principle. She came back about half an hour later and she said, has everybody signed it? And Bauer pointed out that I had not. And she said, well, you have to. And I said, well, I I don't want to. And she handed it to me and stood over me and she said, sign the book. (laughs) And so I opened it up and here was this lovely thing that Bauer had written from his family. And Mm -hmm. without thinking, I said, oh, Bauer already wrote something. I'm just going to add my name to it. And Dan leaned back and he said, why not? That's how you've made your career. I thought it was singularly the funniest thing he has Uh ever said. But yeah, so how do I do it is I try to find something that's already written and I add my name to it. Um, Okay. So part of it for me, so I'm going to talk about me personally, then I'll, I'll pitch it back to you, and then we can talk about the field in general, because I think there are as many different ways that we can come up with a novel development as there are people working in the field. Because my original training is as a clinical psychologist, and because I have very sincere interests in high-risk, child development, development psychopathology uh, uh, kinds of questions... I feel like a lot of my ideas come out of things we encounter doing applied research that we don't have a ready answer for. So I did some work recently, well, over the last few years of trying to separate these between and within components in reciprocal relations over time. And working with colleagues, we articulated some very specific research hypotheses that at least to my knowledge, no existing method adequately tested in a way that I wanted to test. And so puzzling through some things we can do with panel models, some things we can do with residualized change models, some things we can do with latent curve models. I proposed a way of doing this, but my sole motivation was to address a substantive question that I had. I'm not a math guy. I'm not a math stack guy. I'm not a comp stack guy. And so I'm not going to develop a new standard error. I'm not going to find a new efficient way for Fisher scoring. But what I try to do is to say, can I draw on what we already know and what we already do well and combine it in a way that doesn't currently exist? Nice. Yeah. So assuming that that is throwing it back to me, I really think the number one thing is to fill a need, right? And you have you do that really beautifully in your work. Um, there have been many times where an idea has hit me. It came out of some some application that was was absolutely needed. One of my favorites was uh, a colleague was writing a grant. And I have this rhythm when I work with people on grants where they will say something like, we'd like you to be the methodologist and how much time do you need to do the method section and blah, blah, blah. So after you've done that a hundred times or so, you sort of know how long things are going to take you. And and I said, well, you know, just give me, give me 72 hours or something like that. And this is a team I'd worked with many times. And they described, and I won't get into the details of it, but they said, so yeah, we're basically doing this. It was some longitudinal stuff. And then they dropped this bomb on me about how the gist of it was, we don't have the same measures at any time points, but we want to get at longitudinal, you know, change and growth, all this stuff. And they said, do you think that's going to be a problem? <laughs> like, <laughs> what? What do you think? Our proposal um, fundamentally yeah. depends on time travel. Is that yes. something that you might be able to help us out with? Uh, yeah, give give me eighty hours. I think then. Um, 
so anyway, but I had to derive a way to to solve this problem and do it in a timely manner to be able to turn this around <laughs> for uh, for the grant, which I'm happy to say was was funded. But, uh, you know, so some of these needs that arise are needs that you encounter when you're working with other people. Some are on fire, uh, some are not. Um, others, of course, come from consuming the methodological literature. And, and that's a good one for students, I think, is to become, as they're cozying up with literature and they're finding, you know, you'll read at the end, next steps for this particular area are the following, which is often just code for stuff that the author has already done and is ready to push out if they haven't already pushed out. But but that's a good place for other, you know, for especially new researchers to start. Um, I think a lot of the really interesting things that get done draw from different areas. You know, you you pull yeah. in something that is used that people think about in econometrics, but they don't deal with measurement error. And you pull in something from uh, from public health or biostat. When, when you when you're well read across disciplines, which I make no claim to be, I, I encounter many of these things accidentally. But you put these things together and you can make these incredibly cool things that transcend the boundaries of different disciplines and really target very specific needs. And you said one time, we're not a saddle in search of a horse. I completely agree with that. Sometimes the best tools we can build are made out of components that come from uh, from these different areas. So a lot of the ideas uh, in terms of methodological develop come from drawing on these different disciplines. And if I could interrupt briefly is I've, mm-hmm. I, I have talked in with some of my grad students in a, a kind of a research method standpoint of sometimes there's a, a pejorative term that some development is derivative, right? Mm-hmm. Is that's almost like an insult. It's like, that's ah, just derivative work. And so meaning that you're just, all you're doing is combining two things that already existed. And it's not really a contribution. And when I was in grad school, I had a good friend of mine who was getting a PhD in aeronautical engineering, and his specialty was trailing vortexes generated by tail rotors in helicopters. And Mm -hmm. I thought that was very cool and and something. It was kind of a conversation killer, you know, at 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 a dinner. But he would have a few beers, And then wax deeply philosophical about was the ice cream sandwich invented or discovered? Because cookies have always existed and ice Uh cream has always existed. And some moron put them together and said, look what I invented. And Mm -hmm. he would make this impassioned and deeply inebriated argument that it was discovered. It wasn't invented. And mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of similar as if you take something from a panel model and you take something from a growth model and you put it together, is that really a unique and novel contribution? And I actually argue very strongly that it is, mostly mm-hmm. because I've got a horse in the race and that characterizes the past right. 20 years of my work. But I don't see that as any less of a novel development than somebody doing analytical derivations to come up with a new robust standard error that allows us to do something that we weren't otherwise. I have equal respect for that, but I see derivational contributions as as unique and novel as doing a white sheet design on, you know, a test statistic. Although I, st- I do like the metaphor of the ice cream sandwich. I'm going to hang on to, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hang know, on to that one. You have to if picture in your mind's eye a guy with an uh-huh. IQ of 180, six uh-huh. beers in, insulting uh-huh. a room full of psych grad students because they don't understand the difference between invention and discovery. Uh-huh. That was the best part of it. No, the best part is that you invited that person to liven up a quantitative party. Well, um, there was, it was who com- should we bring? It was a complex <laughs> equation. Right. Who should we bring who's more interesting than any of us? I know. The guy who studies vortexes. Okay. <laughs> Good one. Um, all right. So you mentioned developments. So mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about evaluation of the methods. Mm-hmm. How do you... How do you think about evaluating mm. the methods that you do? So for me, there are several different ways. I mm-hmm. am a big fan, but also deeply concerned about computer simulation methodology. 
And you and I have chatted, uh, you know, about future episodes, and I think it would be a very good longer discussion about the interplay between analytic derivations and computer simulations. Mm -hmm. I feel like one initial step in evaluation is sometimes from an engineering field is is called a proof of concept. So you have some, some modeling and you just have to show that it works the way that you think it does. Mm -hmm. So I will generate data from, you know, some known model and in a very simple way, say, does my model get back the, the parameter estimates that generated the data? It's in some way, it's circular. It's almost a validation of how I generated the data, right? Mm -hmm. um, but we can talk about details of that later. I, I have concerns about how we as a field use that in ways that maybe don't move us forward in the, the but way But it that is we one think. way of knowing. It is and one, we can, I, mean, right. I want and there I have you go. several dozen papers where I use that. Um, mm -hmm. all of which are like, have somebody with an A, B or C letter in front of me. <laughs> no, exactly. And I'm, I'm, I, I deeply respect simulation. It's like a weapon, right? Is I deeply respect it, but I think it can also be misused. So that's one way. Another way that's near and dear for me is application to real data to evaluate mm -hmm. real substantive hypotheses and to determine, does this appear to be getting at the processes that we believe to exist? And so, mm -hmm. Uh, that's another evaluative method. Um, right. Now, to reflect it back on you, just so I'm not unclear in the toss, how do you evaluate your novel methods that you have developed? Well, first of all, there's the question about whether it's actually novel. And there have been too many occasions where one of the reviewers pointed out that it was novel in 71 when someone else invented it. Um, <laughs> but... Notwithstanding, well, there's you know there's a tension between the simulation methodology that you allude to and mathematical derivations, and I, and I like the idea that you had that you know we'll, we can expand upon that at some other point. But but I have rolled up my sleeves a few times and tried to get into the mathematics of things, and when I can do it, uh, I think it's great. And I some of it I can do, some of it I can't do, and I think that there are places when the mathematics is absolutely what you should be doing, and there are places where I think simulation is absolutely what you should be doing. There's a, a little place in between those two that I don't see people use as often as they might. Um, I call them population analyses. Um, oftentimes you don't need to simulate things. Sometimes what you can do is you can just take the whatever, for example, the moments are that you have, which could be mean structure, variance, covariance structure, apply models to different population configurations because you don't care about the sampling behavior. You can model population level things, which in essence are like the uh, long run expectations of what you would get in a simulation anyway. And again, if the random variability is not so interesting to you, it's more about um, focusing the bias. You can get a lot out of population analysis um, and you can choose a lot more points along the surface mm -hmm. uh, in that way. Um, so population analysis is one thing that I will try uh, as well when I don't care so much about the sampling behavior. Uh, so math, simulation, and the application thing is very interesting. That comes right back to the point of not being a saddle in search of a horse. Uh, and I have to admit, there have been occasions where I have come up with something that I that was motivated by some data, but in the end, the data were so darn messy that the you know the getting the model and the data yeah. to talk were were a little bit challenging. And then I was e emailing like nineteen different people saying, "You know, you did a study back in '98, and I think you might have had a data a data set that you know to try and find something." Um, but but there's tremendous value in illustrating the things that you want to do as a proof of concept, as you know, it, as part of the process of putting it in the hands of people who are actually going to use it, um, because then you can you can walk the the reader through and walk yourself through the interpretation of these things, uh, convincing yourself they mean what they mean, convincing the audience they mean what they mean. A number of years ago, if I'm not mistaken, multi, uh, the journal Multivariate Behavioral Research mandated that one of the components of the methodological papers that were included, I think would be an application of whatever it is you were developing. Does that sound familiar to you? It does. And I, when those discussions were being had, I actually argued against that as a policy. I mean, there are applications where, you know, that maybe is less relevant. I understand it and I support it. And I, I am a vocal supporter of we really are doing real research on real people with real data. But I found students and postdocs with whom I'm working saying, my paper is all done, but I'm trying to find a data set. 
to right. use. And I find that of less utility. Yeah. And for me, I applauded the spirit of it. And I thought it's very applicable to other people's work. Um, <laughs> no, no, it's. It, I think it's. A, I think it's a good idea in many cases, but doesn't work in, in all cases. But it gets back to the idea that what you and I, I think have tried to emphasize in things that we have done, and that is that we don't just intend to come up with sterile methodological things. We we want people to use our models. That's um, because we think that they can answer more questions uh, than they could answer previously, or at least answer the questions they were trying to answer previously in better, more accurate, less biased ways, um, You know, whether it's an entirely new model or a refinement on an existing model. Um, and to me, doing application is part of the dissemination process. I will put a little twist on your dissemination thing and this is something that you and I have talked about many times also, is the the sense of responsibility that we have to be translational in the work that we do, mm-hmm. uh, both in how we communicate in the papers that we write that are primarily aimed at methodological audiences, but also in other things that we do to make sure that it's not just the nerds who are looking at it. You know, it's the, the people who, who need these kinds of things. So in your dissemination bullet, it would have part B2II uh, that would be something about trying to keep that translational component to what we do. So we bring it back to the the people whom we all try to serve, the people that Alexis is talking to at the party. Yeah, I completely agree. And I have kind of a hobby. I'm, uh, my whole life, I've been fascinated by airplanes. I have no tie. I don't, I'm not a pilot. I, I you know, I, I don't know anything about it. But I've just been fascinated from an engineering standpoint as they, they remain even at my age and for how many thousands of flights I've taken is it's still magic. You know, that something like that can float off of the ground. I mean, and what we're talking about, development, evaluation, and application, is very similar to, you know, the design building and and production of a new aircraft. You have some white sheet design. So Boeing built the 787. And one of the things that they emphasized on that is it wasn't derivative from other aircraft, right? The, The 767 was simply a 757 just made bigger. And the 787 was a, they call it a white sheet design from the ground up. Everything was new. All right, so you have the development of that. Evaluation, you have all the wind tunnel studies, you have all the computer simulations. And so you have some evaluation, but then you have some application as at the end of the day, somebody has to take it off. Some woman or some man sits at the control and I've always wondered what that feeling is, right? They have them on YouTube of the first time. And do you think right. that there's some some woman who, you know, flew like F-18s and, and F-22s and you get about halfway down the runway. What's going through their mind? It's like, right. well, we're going to see what happens here. Yeah. Um, I've always wondered what that, that final thought is as the nose so, comes up for the very so, first time. Uh, Penn and Teller have <laughs> used to have this bit about the first person who tried to catch a bullet in their teeth <laughs> and it's like first first step toss the bullet to the person <laughs> they catch it in their teeth do that a few times and then you're like okay now this next one is gonna be coming a little bit faster yeah, exactly so there's a magazine i read it, it's called aviation week and space technology and it's a trade magazine it's been around for like 80 years and it's the equivalent of my Playboy, which is, I say I get it for the articles, but I actually just look at the pictures. And I have them stacked all over the house of fighter jets and the, the helicopters and all of that. But I see everything that we're talking about very similar to that, as there's a development process, there's an evaluation process, there's an application process. And then what's interesting is, again, going back to Alexis and thinking about people who are listening to this and all the different fields that you represent and come from, how you plug into that trifecta of development, evaluation, application, dissemination, I guess it's a quadfecta or whatever, if that's a (laughs) word, is how you go about doing that is then kind of dealer's choice, right? Do you work in measurement? Do you work in modeling? Do you work in design, research design? One of my heroes is Will Shadish, and <laughs> he he tragically passed away a, a, a few years ago, but dedicated his career to, you know, continuing the work of Cooking Campbell in, in mm-hmm. design of, of how do you how do you build a study to obtain data 
to maximize internal validity, external validity, construct validity, all these critical things. But whatever it is you do, are you in causal inference? Are you in mediation? Are you in, in evaluation, assessment, personnel selection? How does that plug into the four factors that then allow us to make these unique and novel contributions that define us as a field of quantitative methodology? Wow, that is great. Yes, that pulls it all together. Um, the evaluation, the measurement, the statistics, and how they communicate to be able to answer questions outside of our field as well as uh, inside of our field. That's very nice. So I'm going to tell you one airplane thing. Uh, you may or may not know this. My dad was a Boeing engineer. He was a lead cockpit designer on many, many uh, planes. I had no and idea. Including the 757, uh, 767. He was the lead guy doing cockpit stuff. And, and yet in an earlier episode, you said the 787 Max. <laughs> okay. Because um, you totally paid attention to your dad. Anyway, so we... <laughs> the only thing I wanted to mention was, so taking trips with dad, you'd be on the airplane and sitting there, and I love flying in airplanes. There's not, I'm not nervous in any way, shape, or form. I think it's just, it is a blast, and it is magic, and I love it. But to be on the plane, and Dad would go, oh, engine one's out. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, you kind of look over at him, and he just kind of, huh. And then I remember one flight where he had said that, and a little bit later he goes, oh, three's out also. That's interesting. <laughs> oh wow whatever and uh he goes oh it's fine we you know we could make it home on one you know it's not uh -huh. a big deal uh but you know i'm like maybe you should not speak so loudly dad <laughs> i have no one in my my family line that has as impressive credentials with airlines as that other than my drunk trailing vortex friend <laughs> there is a family rule I am not allowed to talk about anything plane related near on a plane, near a plane, in line for a plane, because uh -huh. I also have this very Rain Man like memory of plane crashes. And I start <laughs> okay. saying, well, you know, this plane we're about to get on, and then I give a history uh -huh. of it. And the all time low point, I have twin daughters and, you know, they're, of course, you know, in typical planes, just domestic single aisle, there are three seats on each side. And so when we would travel as a family, we'd have a parent kid in one row and a parent kid in another row. And so I was sitting on the aisle, my six-year-old daughter was in the middle, and an elderly woman was in the window, and I was getting settled, and I wasn't paying attention to what was happening, and the elderly woman was quite nervous about flying. And she was talking to my, my daughter, and she put on her seatbelt and said, the, the elderly woman said, well, it's a sure good thing they have these, huh? As she's <laughs> cinching down her seatbelt. And honest to God, my daughter said, yep, makes it easier to identify the bodies. <laughs> That's a paternity test right there. <laughs> so... Yeah, we have, certain, right. we have certain plain rules with our family as well. I want you to use that to tie everything together now. Can you use seatbelts and identifying the bodies to bring this episode home? Go. Pop quiz. Go. So pop... Oh, man, we are going back to pop quiz. You're the old lady, and you are nervous about what is it that you do? What is quantitative methodology... How do you make a unique contribution? And you're sitting next to my daughter who says, it makes it easier to identify the bodies. That's what Quantitude does. That's why we're here. We make it easier to identify the bodies. And, huh. You know, I feel like, you know, what is quantitative methods? The beauty of it is, is every, all of us have a different definition of that, and they're all equally valid. Mm -hmm. Right is we aspire to make a unique, novel, and meaningful contribution to science. And how we do that is if you're doing analytical derivations, if you're doing simulation methodology, if you're doing rigorous empirical evaluations of real data to answer real questions, the answer to that question is yes. That is quantitative method. All of it is quantitative methodology. So yeah, I think today's motto is quantitude a podcast dedicated to making it easier to identify the bodies. How'd I do? Cue the music.
Excellent. Uh, there's just nothing to be said after that. So I'm just going to say thank you to everybody for joining us today. And uh, a blast, as always. Uh, it was nice to be introspective with you uh, a bit. And anything else that you want to... Are you going to leave it at identifying the bodies? Well, that and thank you, Alexis, for calling in is, yeah. is we appreciate. I don't know if we even remotely addressed even the first 10 seconds of your question. <laughs> but, you know, as we've said on prior episodes, you get exactly what you pay for. So you um, thank you. And others do. Please, you know, call in, leave a message. Uh, uh, let us know if there's something you'd like to hear us talk about or a question that we could address. And enjoy the rest of your day. All right. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Be sure to check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you get your other clearly less favorite podcasts and leave us a review. And be sure to tell your friends. Uh, Oh, also, check us out on Twitter, where our handle is at QuantitudePod. You can also visit our website, QuantitudeThePodcast.org, to check out previous episodes and other really cool stuff. If you could just read that right there. Here? Yes, Mr. Galton. That's a list of sponsors. Mr. Galton? I'm Sir Francis Galton. I'm not reading your imbecilic list of sponsors. I assure you my words will be better than any of your pish-posh. I am all the sponsor you need. Hello, this is Sir Francis Galton. Whenever I plug in my Marconi wireless, I listen to Quantitude. It's the podcast for all people who wish to correlate. You see what I did there? Quantitude is the future, like phrenology.